Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is episode four in our Murder at Lake Waco series. A trigger warning for our listeners. This series contains gruesome depictions of murder and mentions of sexual assault. This episode looks at the trial proceedings of the Lake Waco murder case, which will reveal troublesome details about the night in April 1982. I advise proceeding with caution. In a shivering hand, David Spence scrawled a chilling account of a conversation that had taken place between Deeb and himself. It was June of 1982. Spence claimed when Deeb posed the question, would you kill someone for $5,000? Spence had answered in the affirmative. When Spence was finally handed over to the Texas Department of Corrections on August 30th, 1983, to serve his 90-year sentence for sexual assault, Simmons breathed a sigh of relief. He would be safe locked up there, while Simmons pulled at other threads in the investigation. Three of his four suspects were in custody, and he had people reporting to him about Deeb's whereabouts at all times. For the first time in almost a year, Truman attempted to distance himself from the case for a few days and go fishing with his son. Things started to pick up after that confession. There were witnesses now, willing to come forward and talk about Spence. Tony Melendez, Gilbert's younger brother, was also brought into custody and taken to Nucas County Jail, though he insisted he had been painting apartments on the day of the Lake Waco murders. He failed a polygraph test, and a few jailhouse informants claimed they had heard him say he was at Lake Waco. Meanwhile, with nothing but speculation to hold Deeb on, Simmons had to let him go, and Deeb did not sit idle during that time. Soon after being set free, After the initial questioning, Manir Deeb left from Waco, through Houston, and into New Mexico, before finally settling in the city of Dallas. There, he took refuge with his cousin, and enrolled at the DeVry Institute of Technology in a computer programming course. He took on a job at a self-service gas station in a neighborhood infamous for its topless bars liquor stores, and adult movie houses. Through deceit, he obtained both a chauffeur's and regular driver's license, each one under a false name. On March 2, 1983, he met Marcy Blackwood in Dallas 
and traveled to Waco and his Thunderbird to be married by County Judge Mike Gassaway. You may kiss the bride. But as soon as the ceremony was complete, the new Miss Deeb walked to a bus station to return to Dallas while Deeb stayed back to meet some friends. That following month, Simmons saw Deeb for the first time in six months since he had arrested him in September of 1982. Casey Rowe, a former crush of Deeb's, called Simmons to tell him Deeb was back in town and harassing her. Following her to and from work, sitting in the parking lot outside her apartment at all hours of the night, and making threatening phone calls to her. Patty Pick, a friend of Casey's, had reported a similar experience, revealing that Deeb had called her greatly depressed, claiming that Casey was the reason for the murders at the lake, and that he was going to get her. Truman acted quickly, convincing Casey to give a statement while he had a patrolman pick up Deeb. When Deeb was brought in for questioning, Truman didn't mince words. He told Deeb that he was aware of the threats he had been making, and if he wanted to make threats, he should be talking to him. In a fit of rage, the detective challenged the young man to a showdown on Austin Avenue at sundown. Unresponsive, Deeb sat there in chilling silence as Truman went off on him. Not long after, Deeb posted his car as collateral for a $4,500 bond, and he was released a week later. He returned to Dallas, hopefully never to return again. By this time, Vic Fiesel, the district attorney, was satisfied that there was enough evidence to seek grand jury indictments against David Spence and the Melendez brothers, but he felt that more evidence was needed to connect Manir Deeb to the crime. The grand jury would have to be convinced of Truman's murder-for-hire theory based only on the fact that Deeb had purchased an insurance policy and the statements of Gail Kelly and Patty that Deeb had admitted to his involvement in the murders, an admission he later claimed was only a joke. Just days before the grand jury was to meet, Truman suggested to the assistant DA that they call Karim and Maria Cusum, Deeb's longtime friends and business partners, to the district attorney's office. Despite their initial belief in Deeb's innocence, they had never been asked to give statements. Truman believed that there might be something they knew that could shed light on the case. In the darkness that surrounded the investigation, every piece of information mattered. Every hint of truth was worth pursuing. When the Kasims arrived, a chilling foreboding descended upon the room. Detective Simmons tasked Dennis Bayer with interviewing Karam while he and Ned saw answers from Maria in Butler's office. But within an hour, Bayer emerged from his interview with Karam, looking like he had just seen a ghost. If you had come to me with this, Bayer said, his voice trembling, I never would have believed it. In their conversation, Bayer learned that Karam had heard Deeb and Spence discussing Gale and the insurance policy multiple times. 
He remembered Deeb asking Spence if he knew anyone who could kill Gale, and Spence said he could find someone. He also remembered Spence coming to the store after Gale's murder and arguing with Deeb. Bayer went on to recount the full story, including Maria's statement about Deeb's discussions of the insurance policy and his satisfaction that Kenneth Franks was dead. It was as if the pieces of the puzzle had finally come together. When he asked why he didn't come forward before, Karam said he didn't think it was relevant because Gail was alive and well. He assumed it was just a morbid fantasy Deeb had to get money. Fiesel was elated at the news and quickly set his sights on securing indictments for all four suspects. While Simmons kept a close watch on Deeb's movements, eager to bring him to justice. On the day of Deeb's court appearance, Simmons, Bayer, and Sheriff Harwell drove to Dallas with a warrant for his arrest. When they finally found Deeb holed up at his cousin's house, a half-smile spread across his face. Do you think this time you have enough to make it stick? He asked, his accent thick. This time, I've got enough to stick it in your arm, Simmons replied, his voice like a death kneel. Deeb's smile faded as he was taken into custody. On November 14, 1983, Deeb was arrested for the murder of Jill Montgomery. A few days later, on the 21st, the McClellan County Grand Jury indicted Spence, Deeb, and both the Melendez brothers for the murders of the three teenagers. A grateful town breathed a sigh of relief. With the trial coming soon, they would find out what happened that tragic night. Except the residents of Waco didn't have to wait long. In May of 1984, a month before the actual trial, Tony Melendez pleaded guilty to the crimes. With Tony's confession, Spence had nowhere left to hide. In light of that confession, the residents of Waco County were even more eager for the trial. On June 18, 1984, the McClellan County Courthouse in Texas was packed with spectators who crowded into the courtroom to catch a glimpse of the accused killers. Manir Deeb, Gilbert Melendez, and David Wayne Spence. This was a trial that had captured the attention of the entire nation as the state's case was based on the theory that Spence, along with the Melendez brothers, had been hired by Deeb to kill Gail Kelly for insurance money, but they had mistakenly killed Jill because of their uncanny resemblance. Kenneth Franks and Raylene Rice, it seems, were just collateral damage. At the trial, Deeb testified on his own behalf, denying any involvement in the murders. In response, the prosecution called Daryl Beckham, one of Spence's fellow inmates, who testified that Deeb had several conversations with Spence and the McClellan County Jail. In one of these conversations, Deeb was angry because Kenneth Franks was spending too much time with Kelly Rowe, and he wanted Spence to get rid of Kelly. This was before there was any discussion of killing Gail. 
In fact, the prosecution's case was built on circumstantial evidence and the testimony of 39 witnesses, including seven jailhouse informants. One of the key pieces of evidence was the testimony of the bite mark expert, Campbell, who claimed that Spence was the only individual who could have bitten Jill and Raylene, given the marks on their bodies. The defense, in response, stated that nobody's blood or hair was found at the crime scene and that the insurance taken out was a basic employee plan that covered accidents. That defense, luckily, fell flat on its face. In less than two hours, the jury found Spence guilty, and he was given a death sentence. With relieved sighs and cheers from spectators, both live and from home, Spence was handcuffed in the court, later to be transferred to Huntsville. This verdict, perhaps, lit a fire under Melendez, who requested to speak to Simmons to see if he could plead guilty to get a lighter sentence. As we deep dive into these chilling tales, we all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where Recess Mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium, and stress-balancing aptogens. Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water, it's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon, letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. Truman informed him that there could still be some options for him, but that he would have to stop playing games and provide the truth. If he testified against Deeb, the jury would definitely convict him. And besides, he didn't owe Deeb anything. It would result in a lighter sentence for him. During that conversation, Melendez relaxed and expressed regret for causing trouble for Truman earlier. He would think about his statement while Deeb stood for his trial. Deeb's trial had a more somber note than the chaos and frenzy that surrounded Spence's trial. Once the insatiable thirst for justice among the townspeople was quenched, the energy seemed to die down, and it seemed even the district attorney's office was feeling low after fighting so hard. Their preparations for the trial felt more like a draining chore than a noble duty. District Attorney Vic Fiesel was torn. He had contemplated handing over the responsibility of the trial to his colleagues, Ned Butler and Pat Murphy. Many of his friends had warned him that the Deeb case could be a dangerous gambit for his political career, coming at a time when his popularity was at its peak. A successful outcome was expected, 
but if the jury were to acquit Deeb, it could erase much of the public support that he had gained from the Spence verdict. Fiesel weighed the risks and rewards, knowing that the trial would take him away from his office for six grueling weeks. The challenge of securing a death penalty in a complicated murder-for-hire case where the defendant had no direct involvement was widely regarded as one of the toughest tasks a prosecutor could face. But anything less than the death penalty would be deemed a failure. It didn't help that the venue of the trial had been changed due to the publicity Manir Deeb had received. The attorneys had to gather all relevant materials and coordinate the transportation of witnesses, some of whom would have to fly in from far-off places. Simmons was tasked with driving the witnesses to and from the courthouse. On a Sunday evening at the Gate One Motel in Cleburne, Fiesel burst into Butler and Simmons's room, a smile stretching across his face. I don't know why, he exclaimed, but I feel good about this trial. Butler and Simmons, too, were feeling pretty good. The courtroom was filled with hush whispers as the defense attorney droned on about Deeb's legality as a resident of the United States. But Butler, having heard enough, revealed how Deeb had paid Marcy Blackwood $500 to become his bride. And though he should have informed the immigration authorities, there was a much more serious matter they had to attend to first. It seems Deeb had kept this information hidden from his own legal team, a deceit that was just the tip of the iceberg. As the trial wore on, it became evident that the Jordanian man was not as truthful as he had led them to believe. The trial dragged on, with more and more new shocking revelations coming to light, from Deeb's tendency for violence to his bragging that he can hire hitmen to carry out his dirty work for him. Melendez, who had chosen to speak out, gave a testimony that served as the final nail in Deeb's coffin. Details upon details poured out of Melendez, and as he recounted the horrifying events of that night at Coney Park, many in the courtroom couldn't bear to listen. Tears formed in Rod Montgomery's eyes as he walked out unable to handle the testimony. Nancy Shaw was also overcome with emotion, leaving the room in a fit of sobs. Richard Franks followed shortly after, unable to hear the horrors being described. He recounted every grisly details of the murders, every step of the journey to dispose of the bodies at Spiegelville Park. Gilbert's account of the event was halting and difficult for him to put into words, speaking of how everything just got messed up. As the testimony of Melendez echoed around the courtroom, the air grew heavy with the weight of the atrocities he had spoken of. When the judge finally called for a recess, the jury stumbled out of the courtroom, their emotions raw and their spirits shattered. They glanced at each other, their faces etched with shock and disbelief, and words failed them 
but something else was happening during his testimony. As he recounted Deeb's involvement in the murders, Munir Deeb's expression went from cockiness to anger. His jaw tightened, and he focused a pained look at Melinda's. On July 30th, 1985, the verdict was finally passed. Munir Deeb, also known as Lucky, was sentenced to death, while the Melendez brothers, who had pleaded guilty and testified against Spence, were given life in prison. Finally, the parents of Kenneth Franks, Raylene Rice, and Jill Montgomery would rest easy. But it wouldn't be for long. In the years to come, Spence would appeal his sentence. The only shred of evidence connecting Spence to the murder was the testimony of Homer Campbell Jr., a forensic odontologist who claimed the bite marks on Montgomery's body matched Spence's teeth. But when Spence appealed, his lawyers brought in five more forensic experts to examine the crime scene photos used to implicate him. Out of the five, only two agreed that any of the bite marks in the photos were similar to any of the dental molds. But even they identified the mold as belonging to a completely unrelated patient of the dentist who conducted the comparisons. Around the same time, in 1986, Spence's mother, Joanita White, would receive a letter from one of the inmates who had testified against Spence, apologizing for lying on the stand while implicating her son. She shared this information with his lawyer, who then shared it with the Waco police. But before any action could be taken, the nightmare deepened, as White was found brutally raped and murdered in her own home. The police quickly arrested two suspects, Joe Sidney Williams and Calvin Washington, both of whom were found guilty and sentenced to life. As the years went by, Deeb, now an inmate himself, began to study the law. And in 1991, got his sentence overturned by convincing the state that Beckham's testimony was inadmissible hearsay. As time went on, more and more of these statements by witnesses would be debunked. In the heart of November 1991, Waco police officer Jan Price, who was assigned to be the lead investigator in the grisly murder of Joanita White, made a chilling revelation. She claimed in a sworn statement she believed the two men convicted for the crime, Williams and Washington, were innocent. Price stated that after the initial police investigation of White's home, a neighbor reported a break-in at the house. When Price investigated, she found that the intruder had rummaged through White's personal papers, which were stored in the same room that Spence used to occupy when he lived with his mother. In her pursuit for the truth, Price quickly zeroed in on a suspect, a man by the name of Benny Carroll, who had committed a similar heinous crime in the same neighborhood shortly after White's murder. However, when she approached the McClellan County District Attorney's Office with her findings, she was told that Simmons was in charge of the White case. Price went on to claim in her affidavit 
that she discovered that Simmons had made a deal with a jail inmate, offering the man's immediate release in exchange for incriminating statements against Washington. Her investigation revealed that Simmons was in the habit of meeting with inmates at the district attorney's office, feeding them information to fabricate false statements, and pass them off as truth. Price was steadfast in her conviction that Simmons had made promises to jail inmates and fabricated evidence against Washington and Williams. So what was to stop him from fabricating information about Spence, Deeb, and Melinda's? On October 14, 1992, the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals set aside Williams's conviction, stating that the testimony presented at his trial was improperly admitted. He was eventually released from prison, and the charges against him were dismissed on June 30, 1993. Deeb went on trial for the second time and was released on January 12th. 1993. Spence, however, was executed on April 3, 1997. As the toxic gas filled the chamber, he cried out, I want you to understand. I speak the truth when I say I didn't kill your kids. I have not killed anyone. DNA tests on hairs found on the terry cloth strips used to bind Montgomery and Rice did not point to Spence or the Melendez brothers. The bite marks had already been discredited years prior. Washington continued to fight for his innocence and eventually obtained a court order for DNA testing of the evidence in his case. In 2001, the tests revealed that the blood on a shirt found in his home was not the victim's blood, as had been claimed at his trial. In addition, DNA tests on semen recovered from White's body both excluded Washington and Williams, linking instead to Benny Carroll, who had taken his own life in 1990. Which means, there is still so much about the night of 1982 that we do not know. We have bits and pieces of a story, and how much of it is reliable, who can tell? The piece the parents of Kenneth, Raylene, and Jill found for a few months was shattered quickly. And once again, the Waco County residents began to lock their doors and empty the streets before sundown. <laughs>